Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's scripture is from the book of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, Suddenly, two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And then they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all of this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, He saw the linen clothes by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come to this moment, as we read about these first friends of yours who were surprised to find an empty tomb where they expected to find a funeral, for some of us right now at this part of our lives, it does feel like a funeral. We're overwhelmed by violence in this world, by war, by fears, by worries. We're overwhelmed by the complexity and the contradictions of our own hearts and our own lives. We're scattered people. Some of us come to this moment on this day of joy, and joy is part of our native language. We are in a moment, a time of our season, jobs going well, families going well, we're feeling connected. Some of us come to this very moment where we're so angry, or so hurt, or so addicted, so depressed that we can't hear anything. But however we find ourselves right now, optimistic or fearful, connected or lonely, help us to see that we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, each of us is beautiful, full of honor and dignity, created in your image and likeness. 
And at the same time, each of us is fractured, fragmented. In some ways we get it, in some ways we don't get it. And we're coming undone. And you see all of it. And your response to the beauty and brokenness of this world is to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so now on this Easter, just as you did for those first friends of yours, would you surprise us with your resurrection power, with your resurrection life, with your resurrection love? Would you overwhelm us with your grace? Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed and this world would be renewed. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, many of you know I was born and raised in San Diego and then moved to San Francisco. We thought we'd be there for three years, stayed for 13 years, fell in love with the city. And one aspect of the city we fell in love with was the theater. And so when Hamilton, the Broadway hit musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda, came to San Francisco early, in the early days, Florence and I said, we are going to go and see that show. The problem was, it was completely sold out from here to as far as you could see. But I had a plan. Every single day, I would ride my bike by the Orpheum Theater. I would ride through the velvet ropes to the box office and stop and talk to the lady and say, good morning, are there any tickets for Hamilton tonight? And at first, she just thought I was naive, gullible, and maybe you know, a bit ignorant and said, I'm sorry, it's a sold out show tonight. Okay, have a great day. Next day, I'd come by, good morning, how are you? Are there any tickets for Hamilton tonight? She'd say, I'm really sorry, but it's sold out tonight as well. I said, That's great. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day. And on it went for a series of weeks until one day I did my usual commute. This day I happened to have our youngest son, Joshua, in one of those little child carriers behind me. So I'm negotiating the velvet ropes as I pull to the box office and say, good morning. Are there any tickets for Hamilton today? She said, I'm sorry, it's a sold-out show. What part of this don't you understand? And I said, well, how about tomorrow? She looks at her screen and goes, she smiles and says, there are actually two tickets left for tomorrow's show. I didn't ask where the seats were. I didn't ask how much they cost. I just put my credit card down and said, I didn't know if we had a babysitter or not. We're going to make it to that show. And as she's accepting payment, I said, ma'am, would you please just show me on the seating chart where we're going to be sitting tomorrow night? And a wry smile came across her face as, she, as she's about to give really good news. And she said, you are absolutely center at eye level with all of the characters. Just like the best seat in the house as far as I'm concerned. So the next night, Florence and I got dressed up and went out to dinner and made our way to the theater. Now, one of the most difficult parts of watching Hamilton is not singing everything while you're watching it. I have that problem. Especially when it got to one of the signature songs, Wait For It, in which Aaron Burr sings the catchy part with the staccato rhythm, death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints when it takes and it takes and it takes. Death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes. And we're all there in our best clothes, eating fine food, dwelling on the reality of death and the fact that it comes for us all. 
See, I think that's a catchy tune because of the way it was written, but I think it's more resonant with us because it resonates with something deep in our souls. All of us experience death or futility or decay. You had a dream you thought would take place. It is not taking place. There is a death of that dream or you lose a loved one. We all have a sense that in this world of beauty and wonder, still things are not the way they're supposed to be. You don't have to have your news feed on for very long before you realize things in this world are not the way they're supposed to be. You don't have to take too long of honest examination of your own life to come to grips with the reality that things are not the way they're supposed to be. The question is, how do you respond to that? How do you deal with it? Do you deal with it hedonistically to say, you know, one day, you know, we will all die, so eat, drink, and be merry. You might as well have as much fun in the playground as you can before you have to leave. Or do you deal with it apathetically? You just check out. You ignore it. It's just too much to think about. It's easier to fill your schedule with achievements, activities, projects, events. Let's not think about it. Or do you deal with it fatalistically? Where the thought of death just overwhelms you so much, it's like a tidal wave coming at you. As one philosopher said, the prospect of death in our life would be as if somebody put a loaded gun to your head and said, for the next hour, I want you to enjoy the finest food, the finest music, the most beautiful sunsets, the most stimulating conversations. I want you to enjoy all the beauty this world has to offer, but in one hour, that trigger will be pulled. The philosopher says, death renders all meaning meaningless. How do you deal with it? The question is, is it possible to live in this world with all its disappointments, with all its difficulty, with all its confusion? Is it possible to live in this world with its sadness and sorrow and loss and not become overwhelmed by it, not become apathetic about it, not simply medicate it, but actually face it and become a person of more buoyancy, more resiliency, and more joy? And Easter says, absolutely. Absolutely. The resurrection is the answer to the meaninglessness of death. Now, Christianity is very honest about its pain points, its pressure points, its vulnerable points, and it lifts the resurrection up to you and says, this is the foundational element of the Christian faith. If, you attack, if this gets crumbled, then everything else falls behind. As the Apostle Paul, the early church leader, said, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we are to be pitied more than everybody else on earth. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, we are to be pitied. But if he did actually rise from the dead, it changes everything. There's new creation breaking forth in the midst of the old. It means that death does not have the last word. It means you can have hope in any situation. So let's look at the resurrection today and just consider three aspects of it. The resurrection pushes you to use your mind. Okay? The resurrection moves your heart. And the resurrection propels you outward 
into the world. First, the resurrection pushes you to use your mind. Christians are not people who leave all reason and rationale at the door to come in and believe something that's simply unbelievable. Christians are not overly superstitious. There are actually reasons to believe Jesus rose from the dead. Now, someone's saying right now, I'm sorry, Matt, I have a scientifically oriented worldview. I refuse to believe that a man was killed publicly and rose from the dead, violating the laws of nature. I simply cannot believe that. And I want you to know, I hear you. I, I think I get that. At the same time, let me remind you that science makes new discoveries every day that were previously thought unimaginable or impossible. Imagine explaining to someone 50 years ago quirks and leptons and string theory and the internet and FaceTime and Neuralink. Imagine explaining any of that to someone 50 years ago. So all, all I'm saying here is that's not that that proves the resurrection by any stretch, but it gives you a placeholder to have humility that there might be more going on in this world than you are currently aware of. There are valid reasons to believe, rational reasons, historic reasons, solid ground on which to base our faith, but it is so easy to miss. You know how I know that? Because it's easy for me to miss. You know how else I know that? It was easy for the eyewitnesses to miss. The very first people that should have gotten it the fastest didn't get it. You saw that, right? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? They didn't go there expecting to find a resurrection empty tomb. And then they boldly go back and tell the rest of Jesus' closest friends, and they didn't embrace it rapidly. They thought it was an idle tale. It's easy to miss the resurrection. It was easy for them. It's easy for us. Now, part of it was they were going to the empty tomb to treat Jesus like every other major world religion leader. He was killed in front of them three days earlier. They were going to his tomb with spices to anoint his body. They were going to pay their respects. They were going to remember his teaching. They were going to honor him. And the two people in dazzling white, the messengers, the angels there, are saying, look, if you treat Jesus like every other major world religion leader, if you simply treat him like a good teacher or an exemplary leader or a shining example to follow, you will never meet the real Jesus Christ. Because he lived and died and was risen from the dead. He uniquely is the son of God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And you treat him, you examine him as anything else and you'll miss him entirely. It's a category error. And Luke goes on to show, I know this is hard to believe. So let me just demonstrate to you, he is really risen. You know, someone says, I believe Jesus' teachings are wonderful. He's an inspiration. I try and follow his teachings, respect others, love others, work for justice, care for the outsider. But I'm sorry, I draw the line. I refuse to believe that a man was risen from the dead. Someone else right now is saying, you know, I'm a modern, educated, thoughtful, rational person. Back then, people were more superstitious. Back then, people were more gullible. They believed those things back then. 
but we know different today. I understand that, my friends, but let me just remind you, that's actually, that actually has a, a name. That's called chronological arrogance, chronological snobbery. What it means is, because you come further along on the timeline of human history, you know better than everybody who came before you. Don't you realize that in 50 years, someone else is going to be further along on that timeline and talk about how foolish you were? See, relativism relativizes itself. Beware of chronological snobbery. So when we say we know better, but they didn't know back then, part of what we're thinking is they were more superstitious. And true, true, they might not have decoded the human genome. They might not have conceived of artificial intelligence. But they did know that when someone is killed publicly, they tend to remain dead. They knew that. The resurrection was as hard for them to believe as it is for us. In fact, Jesus was crucified by the Roman Empire. They had made it an art and a science to crucify people dead. It was as hard for them to conceive of it as it is for us. Maybe for different reasons. So part of the obstacle for believing in Jesus' resurrection back then would have been you have two different groups of people. You have the Greeks and the Jews. Greeks would be some of the last people to believe in a physically resurrected Savior. Because the Greek worldview had this dichotomy between the spiritual, which was good, pure, clean, and the physical, which was dirty, disgusting, decaying. The vision for the afterlife for the Greeks was to escape the prison house of the body, to live in that a priori truth out there. And so it was not only inconceivable, it was undesirable to think of a physically resurrected Savior. Now, the Jews, on the other hand, that wasn't their obstacle. The Jews had the obstacle of believing Yahweh is not a personal God that dwells among us. If you wanted to engage with Yahweh, you would go to the temple where heaven and earth overlap and intersect where the priests could offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And yet overnight, thousands of Greeks began to believe that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. And thousands of Jews began to believe that Jesus was the unique son of God risen from the dead. And if you asked any of them why, they would say, because we saw him ourselves. I can't believe that I'm actually believing this, but we saw it ourselves. It changed everything. In other words, Luke is saying the resurrection happened. I'll give you a couple more examples. Because it's critical we get the historic part to it before we move on to the application and the implications. Because Luke is not claiming this is merely a symbolic event here that's supposed to make you feel better, just like every spring comes after the winter and we go look for eggs because they remind us of fertility and life goes on. Luke is saying these things actually happened. So elsewhere in the gospel, we have these eyewitness accounts. Three days later, the tomb is empty. Jesus' followers, the disciples say, the tomb is empty because Jesus rose from the dead. The religious leaders of the time and the Roman Empire said the tomb is empty because the disciples stole the body. The thing everybody agrees on is the tomb is empty. The question is why? 
So then let's just put the disciples on trial for a moment. Good old forensic questioning, motive, means, opportunity. Let's imagine they're now down to 11 because Judas has betrayed Jesus and gone off and taken his own life. 11 apostles and the rest of the followers, largely a group of ragtag fishermen. So did they have the opportunity? This place was heavily guarded. We have the documents, the accounts that say that there were Roman centurions placed in front of the tomb to guard it. Did they have the opportunity? Probably not a great one. Did they have the means? These are fishermen essentially sneaking in behind Navy SEALs and stealing a body under the cover of night. Did they have the motive? You always have to ask, what did they gain by doing it? What did they gain? These disciples did not go on to become wealthy or powerful. These disciples did not go on to become honored in the empire. These disciples went on to generously pour their lives out on behalf of others and courageously proclaim Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, most of them giving their own lives for that testimony. Why would you give your own life for a lie that you know is untrue? See, I can go on and on with these things, but I just want you to see there are reasons to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. The Gospel of Luke, Luke would say it happened. Nobody expected it, but it happened. You know how else he shows it? He names names. This is just a part of good reporting. In verse 10, he doesn't say the women in general or the apostles in general went to the tomb. He says Joanna was there, who we know is the wife of Herod's administrator because of Luke chapter 8, verse 3. He says Mary Magdalene was there. Mary, the mother of James, was there. Luke is essentially saying, if you don't believe me, to the early audience, he's saying, if you don't believe me, go and ask them. You can look it up. We're not really good at research these days. We don't look much up. Back then, they would go back and check with the eyewitnesses. Later, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is writing to this diverse urban church in the city of Corinth. And he says, Christ was raised from the dead and appeared to more than 500 of our brothers and sisters, most of whom are still alive. What he's saying is, go and ask them. Check the source. Now, you can imagine if someone went and asked them, and they said, no, he didn't. There was a chariot race. That, none of that stuff really. The stories never would have gone on. But in fact, as they checked the sources, the exact opposite happened. And it grew in steam and grew in power because the resurrection spread like wildfire as people realized who Jesus actually is. So don't miss this, too. Here's the humbling part. On one hand, it pushes you to use your mind. But also, nobody got it on the first try. So if you're wrestling with the resurrection, if you're asking really big questions about what it means for your life and for this world, know that you are in good company. That's welcome to the spiritual journey of following Jesus. But he pushes you to use your mind to think about these things. But secondly, then, it moves your heart. It moves your heart. You see, when you experience loss, when you experience the death of a loved one, and I hate to tell you, if you live long enough, you will, something in you cries out, this isn't right. When you experience great loss, 
something in you cries out, this is not right. Even if it's after a long and beautiful life, still death comes like an enemy. Now, we dress it up. We write poems about it. We philosophize about death. We wax eloquently about death. But I'll tell you this. When you lose a loved one or face the reality that one day you too will go through that door, simply declaring that it's like one drop slipping off into the ocean of eternity just doesn't satisfy you. It's not satisfactory. The resurrection answers the meaninglessness of death. The resurrection is the ultimate answer of the sorrow and fear of death. Now listen, I don't believe the resurrection because it makes me feel better and gives me hope. I believe the resurrection because it actually happened. But the fact that it actually happened actually gives me hope and makes me feel better. You hear that? I don't believe it because it makes me feel better. I believe it because it's true. But since it's true, it actually makes me feel better. So a Christian is someone who can look at the prospect of your own existence, at the futility and the fragility of this life, be honest about it, and still have hope. A Christian is someone who is then equipped to walk into the darkness of other people's lives, the tombs that feel like death, and expect God to be at work and to be moving. What feels like a tomb in your life right now where you need resurrection hope? Where might you be invited to walk into that tomb with somebody else with resurrection hope? You see, the resurrection pushes you to use your mind, but then it also moves your heart. And finally, it propels you in a new direction altogether. It propels you out into this world because it invites you to participate in new creation. New life breaking forth in the midst of the old. To bring life where there's death. To bring hope where there's despair. To bring light where there's darkness. And we see this in two ways. First, it forms a new community. These, two, these women who are running to the others are like a snowflake that is going to gather into a huge snowball as the women go to the, first of all, note, the, the most bold, courageous members of that community were the women who went out and went back to the rest of the followers. And that snowball will grow as the women go to the rest of Jesus' friends, as those, for that first community who is Jewish Jesus followers will go to the Gentiles, the other ethnicities and cultures, and then it will span out through all the world until 2,000 years later, right here, right now, you and I will be talking about the resurrection. It creates a new community altogether. It creates an intentional community. The resurrection community is an intentional community. It's a community of people, some of whom have a lot in common with you, think like you, like the same food you like, like the same concerts you like, might vote like you politically. And then it's a group of people who are absolutely different from you, all surrounded, all surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. It's intentional. That takes work. If you want an easy community, join a social group. 
Join a knitting group. Join a, you know, a sports group, intramurals, whatever you want to do. If you want a difficult, tough, beautiful community, join a church. And it's there that you will be sharpened, there that you will be grown, there that you will live the deeper life, both for your own impact and the impact in this world. So the question is, are you intentional about your relationships? In San Diego, I've noticed a few default categories for relationships. We San Diegans like a good time, so we have good time friends. We San Diegans like to achieve, and so we have our professional acquaintances. We also like convenience, and so you have friends of convenience who you're like, ah, I don't like them that much, I, I could take it or leave it, but they're always around and I'm fine with it and I don't have the energy to move on, right? Good time friends, professional acquaintances, friends of convenience. Do you have any friends about whom you are intentional to go deeper, to invite them into your life and to move in to theirs with love, understanding, compassion, challenge, that's where the good stuff happens. That's why our church not only gathers around word and sacrament on Sunday mornings, but we also have community groups throughout the week. That's why we have social activities that go on so that we can connect more deeply with each other. And so one action step there is simply come back. Be a part of what we're doing right here. Next week, we will have people join our church officially as members, showing us what it looks like to be a countercultural community in the midst of a consumeristic society that says, I will treat relationships like commodities, and when it adds value, I'll get more, and when it doesn't, I'll discard it. I'll like you, and I'll accept you, and I'll be with you as long as you are adding some sort of goodness to my life, but as soon as it gets difficult, I'm out of here. The church is actually countercultural. We say, I'm committed to you as Christ is committed to me. I'm not going anywhere. I might disagree with you about some things, I might have really big issues with some things that you're saying or doing. And I'm still not going to run away from you. I'm going to be with you. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus brings all people together. Be intentional about your relationships. Life is short. That's one of the things that I learn as a pastor is I'm constantly surrounded by birth, new life, all kinds of good stuff, and death and funerals. And it always reminds me, let me tell you, life is short. Be intentional about your relationships. And finally, it gives you a new mission altogether. See, in this particular culture, women would be considered voiceless, unfortunately. In a patriarchal society, a woman's testimony was not even admitted as evidence in their courts. No voice. Except because of the resurrection, these women had a voice. First they go and they proclaim the gospel and it says, but the apostles thought it was an idle tale. And you would think the story ends right there and you go, see, they didn't even listen to them. Of course they listened to them. Eventually, the resurrection's hard to get. We've already covered that. Eventually they got it. That's why we have the story today. The women had a new story to proclaim. The women had a new voice in society. The apostles had new courage. As, as next week uh, in this story, you see the fishermen who are following Jesus walking back home with their heads down, defeat upon them. They realize that Jesus has risen from the dead and they have a new direction altogether, marked by courage, marked by moving forward into this world, marked by a new story to tell. You see, friends, everybody's story proclaims something. What is the message that your life proclaims? If someone was want to watch a movie about you, what would they say that that main character proclaims with their life? 
in how you speak, in how you act, with whom you spend time, where you direct your energy, where you direct your finances. What's the story your life proclaims? And what would it look like for your life to proclaim resurrection hope in this world? You see, when you do that individually, your life is developed and transformed. When we do this collectively as a church in this neighborhood, our neighbors begin to say things like I have the privilege of hearing regularly when neighbors will stop and say, hey, I'm not really a church-going person. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. But I love that your church is in this neighborhood and the way that you care for your neighbors. We become known as an outpost of the resurrection. What does it look like for you to try that on this week? To see your life as an outpost of the resurrection as we go forward. Friends, this Easter, may we be people who are surprised by the empty tomb. May we be a people who are moved to use our minds as we consider this story. May we be people who are, whose hearts are moved as we're not only comforted by the resurrection, but we begin to comfort the world. May we be a people who are propelled out into our neighborhoods, our city, and our world to bring this good news wherever we go. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we do pray that you now would infuse us with your grace convince us of your resurrection power and remind us that that power is displayed, is utilized for our good and the good of this world. For all the places in our world that feel like death, we pray for your life. For all the parts of our lives that feel like disappointment, we pray for your hope. And for all the brokenness around us that we experience and see, we pray for your courage to move forward and love others how you love us. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.